Chapter Three, Part Six of an essay on the trial by jury. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Read by Beth Ann. Trial by Jury by Lysander Spooner. Chapter Three, Part Six. Section 6. The Coronation Oath. That the legislation of the king was of no authority over a jury is further proved by the oath taken by the kings at their coronation. This oath seems to have been substantially the same from the time of the Saxon kings down to the seventeenth century, as will be seen from the authorities hereafter given. The purport of the oath is that the king swears to maintain the law of the land, that is, the common law. In other words, he swears to concede and preserve to the English people the laws and customs conceded to them by the ancient, just, and pious English kings, and especially the laws, customs, and liberties conceded to the clergy and people by the illustrious King Edward, and the just laws and customs which the common people have chosen these are the same laws and customs which were called by the general name of the law of the land or the common law and with some slight additions were embodied in magna carta this oath not only forbids the king to enact any statutes contrary to the common law but it proves that his statutes could be of no authority over the consciences of a jury, since it has already been sufficiently shown it was one part of this very common law itself, that is, of the ancient laws, customs, and liberties mentioned in the oath, that the juries should judge of all questions that came before them according to their own consciences, independently of the legislation of the king. It was impossible that this right of the jury could subsist consistently with any right on the part of the king to impose any authoritative legislation upon them. His oath, therefore, to maintain the law of the land, or the ancient laws, customs, and liberties, was equivalent to an oath that he would never assume to impose laws upon juries as imperative rules of decision or take from them the right to try all cases according to their own consciences. It is also an admission that he had no constitutional power to do so, if he should ever desire it. This oath, then, is conclusive proof that his legislation was of no authority with a jury, and that they were under no obligation whatever to enforce it, unless it coincided with their own ideas of justice. The ancient coronation oath is printed with the statutes of the realm, volume 1, page 168, and is as follows. Note. The following is a copy of the original. Forma juramenti regis Angliae in coronati sua, archiopiscopus contuare, ad quo de jura et consuetudine, Ecclesia contuaria, antiqua et approbata, pertinent 
regis anglia in ungra et coronare dia coronatias regis anteque rex coronator faciet regi interrogationes subscriptas si legis et consuetudines ab antiques justis et deo devotes regibus plebi anglicano concessas cum sacramenti confirmazione aedem plebi concedere et severe voluveris et praesertum legis et consuetudines et libertates a glorioso regi eduardo clero populoque concessas et respondeat rex concedo et severe volo et sacramento confirmare servabis ecclesia dei cleroque et populo patiam ex integro et concordiam in deo secundum vires tuas et respondeat rex servabo facies vireri in omnibus judiciis tuis equam et rectam justitiam et discretionem in misericordia et veritate secundum vires tuas et respondeat rex faciam concedes justas leges et consuetudines esse tenendas et promites perte eas esse protegendas et ad honorem dei corroborandas quas vulgus illeget secundum vires tuas et respondeat rex concedo et promito End footnote. translation form of the oath of the king of england on his coronation the archbishop of canterbury to whom of right and custom of the church of canterbury ancient and approved it pertains to anoint and crown the kings of england on the day of the coronation of the king and before the king is crowned shall propound the underwritten questions to the king the laws and customs conceded to the english people by the ancient just and pious english kings will you concede and preserve to the same people with the confirmation of an oath and especially the laws customs and liberties conceded to the clergy and people by the illustrious king edward and the king shall answer i do concede and will preserve them and confirm them by my oath will you preserve to the church of god the clergy and the people entire peace and harmony in god according to your powers and the king shall answer i will in all your judgments will you cause equal and right justice and discretion to be done in mercy and truth according to your powers and the king shall answer i will do you concede that the just laws and customs which the common people have chosen shall be preserved and do you promise that they shall be protected by you and strengthened to the honor of god according to your powers and the king shall answer i concede and promise 
The language used in the last of these questions, do you concede that the just laws and customs which the common people have chosen, quas vulgus eligit, shall be preserved, etc., is worthy of special notice, as showing that the laws which were to be preserved were not necessarily all the laws which the king enacted, but only such of them as the common people had selected or approved. And how had the common people made known their approbation or selection of these laws? Plainly, in no other way than this, that the juries composed of the common people had voluntarily enforced them. The common people had no other legal form of making known their approbation of particular laws. The word concede, too, is an important word. In the English statutes, it is usually translated grant, as if with an intention to indicate that the laws and customs and liberties of the English people were mere privileges granted to them by the king, whereas it should be translated concede to indicate simply an acknowledgment on the part of a king that such were the laws, customs, and liberties which had been chosen and established by the people themselves, and of right belonged to them, and which he was bound to respect. I will now give some authorities to show that the foregoing oath has, in substance, been the coronation oath from the times of William the Conqueror, 1066, down to the time of James I, and probably until 1688. It will be noticed, in the quotation from Kellum, that he says this oath, or the oath of William the Conqueror, is in sense and substance the very same with that which the Saxon kings used to take at their coronations. Hale says, Yet the English were very zealous for them, that is, for the laws of Edward the Confessor, no less or otherwise than they are at this time for the Great Charter, insomuch that they were never satisfied till the said laws were reinforced, and mingled, for the most part, with the coronation oath of King William I and some of his successors. Hale's History of the Common Law, 157. Also, William, on his coronation, had sworn to govern by the laws of Edward the Confessor, some of which had been reduced into writing, but the greater part consisted of the immemorial customs of the realm. Ditto, page 202, note L. Kellum says, Thus stood the laws of England at the entry of William I, and it seemed plain that the laws, commonly called the laws of Edward the Confessor, were at that time the standing laws of the kingdom, and considered the great rule of their rights and liberties, and that the English were so zealous for them that they were never satisfied till the said laws were reinforced and mingled, for the most part, with the coronation oath. Accordingly, we find that this great conqueror, at his coronation on the Christmas day succeeding his victory, took an oath at the altar of St. Peter, Westminster, in sense and substance the very same with that which the Saxon kings used to take their coronations. And at Barkhamstead, in the fourth year of his reign, in the presence of Lanfranc, Archbishop of Canterbury, 
for the quieting of the people, he swore that he would inviolably observe the good and approved ancient laws, which had been made by the devout and pious kings of England, his ancestors, and chiefly by King Edward. And we are told that the people then departed in good humor. Callum's preliminary discourse to the laws of William the Conqueror. See also First Hill's History of the Common Law, 186. Crabbe says that William the Conqueror solemnly swore that he would observe the good and approved laws of Edward the Confessor. Crabbe's History of the English Law, page 43. The successors of William, up to the time of Magna Carta, probably all took the same oath, according to the custom of the kingdom, although there may be no historical accounts extent of the oath of each separate king. But history tells us specially that Henry I, Stephen, and Henry II confirmed these ancient laws and customs. It appears also that the barons desired of John, what he afterwards granted by Magna Carta, that the laws and liberties of King Edward, with other privileges granted to the kingdom and church of England, might be confirmed, as they were contained in the charters of Henry I, further alleging that at the time of his absolution he promised by his oath to observe these very laws and liberties. Eckerd's History of England, page 105 to 106. It would appear, from the following authorities, that since Magna Carta the form of the coronation oath has been to maintain the law of the land, meaning that law as embodied in Magna Carta, or perhaps it is more probable that the ancient form has been still observed, but that, as its substance and purport were to maintain the law of the land, this latter form of expression has been used in the instances here cited, from motives of brevity and convenience. This supposition is the more probable from the fact that I find no statute prescribing a change in the form of the oath until 1688. That Magna Carta was considered as embodying the law of the land, or common law, is shown by a statute passed by Edward I, wherein he grants, or concedes, that the Charter of Liberties and the Charter of the Forest shall be kept in every point without breach, and that our justices, sheriffs, and mayors, and other ministers, which, under us, have the laws of our land to guide, shall allow their said charters pleaded before them in judgment in all their points, that is to wit, the great charter as the common law, and the charter of the forest, for the wealth of the realm. Note. It would appear from the text that the Charter of Liberties and the Charter of the Forest were sometimes called laws of the land. End footnote. And we will that if any judgment be given from henceforth contrary to the points of the characters aforesaid by the justices, or by any other ministers that hold pleas before them against the points of the charters, it shall be undone, and holden for naught. 25. Edward I. Chapter 1 and 2. 1297. Blackstone also says, It is agreed by all our historians that the great charter of King John was, for the most part, compiled from the ancient customs of the realm, 
or the laws of Edward the Confessor, by which they usually mean the old common law which was established under our Saxon princes. Blackstone's Introduction to the Charters. See Blackstone's Law Tracts, 289. Crabbe says, It is admitted on all hands that it, Magna Carta, contains nothing but what was confirmatory of the common law, and the ancient usage of the realm, and is, properly speaking, only an enlargement of the charter of Henry I, and his successors. Crabbe's History of the English Law, page 127. That the coronation oath of the king subsequent to Magna Carta was, in substance, if not in form, to maintain this law of the land, or common law, is shown by a statute of Edward III, commencing as follows. Edward, by the grace of God, etc., etc., to Sheriff of Stafford, greeting. Because that by diverse complaints made to us, we have perceived that the law of the land, which we by oath are bound to maintain, etc., Statute 20, Edward III, 1346. The following extract from Lord Summer's tract on grand juries shows that the coronation oath continued the same as late as 1616, four hundred years after Magna Carta. He says, King James, in his speech to the judges in the Star Chamber, anno 1616, told them that he had, after many years, resolved to renew his oath made at his coronation concerning justice and the promise therein contained for maintaining the law of the land. And in the next page, save one, says, I was sworn to maintain the law of the land, and therefore had been perjured if I had broken it. God is my judge, I never intended it. Summers on Grand Jury, page 82. In 1688 the coronation oath was changed by act of Parliament, and the king was made to swear to govern the people of this kingdom of England, and the dominions thereunto belonging, according to the statutes and parliament agreed on, and the laws and customs of the same. Statute 1, William and Mary, Chapter 6, 1688. The effect and legality of the oath will hereafter be considered. For the present it is sufficient to show, as has been already sufficiently done, that from the Saxon times until at least as lately as 1616, the coronation oath has been, in substance, to maintain the law of the land, or the common law, meaning thereby the ancient Saxon customs, as embodied in the laws of Alfred, of Edward the Confessor, and finally in Magna Carta. It may here be repeated that this oath plainly proves the statutes of the king were of no authority over juries, if inconsistent with their ideas of right, because it was one part of the common law that the juries should try all causes according to their own consciences, any legislation of the king to the contrary notwithstanding. Note. As the ancient coronation oath given in the text has come down from the Saxon times, the following remarks of Palgrave will be pertinent in connection with the oath, as illustrating the fact that, in those times, no special authority attached to the laws of the king. 
The imperial Wetinagamote was not a legislative assembly, in the strict sense of the term, for the whole Anglo-Saxon empire. Promulgating his edicts amidst his peers and prelates, the king uses the language of command. But the theoretical prerogative was modified by usage, and the practice of the constitution required that the law should be accepted by the legislatures, courts, of the several kingdoms. The basilicus speaks in the tone of prerogative. Edgar does not merely recommend, he commands, that the law shall be adopted by all the people, whether English, Danes, or Britons, in every part of his empire. Let this statute be observed, he continues, by Earl Oslac, and all the hosts to dwell under his government, and let it be transmitted by writ to the Earldomen of the other subordinate states. And yet, in defiance of this positive injunction, the laws of Edgar were not accepted in Mercia until the reign of Canute the Dane. It might be said that the course so adopted may have been an exception to the general rule, but in the scanty and imperfect annals of Anglo-Saxon legislation, we shall be able to find so many examples of similar proceedings, that this mode of enactment must be considered as dictated by the constitution of the empire. Edward was the supreme lord of the Northumbrians, but more than a century elapsed before they obeyed his decrees. The laws of the glorious Athelstane had no effect in Kent, county, the dependent appanage of his crown, until sanctioned by the Witten of the Shire, county court, and the power of Canute himself, the king of all England, does not seem to have compelled the Northumbrians to receive his code, until the reign of the confessor, when such acceptance became a part of the compact upon the accession of a new earl. Legislation constituted but a small portion of the ordinary business transacted by the imperial Wetina Gamote. The wisdom of the assembly was shown in avoiding unnecessary change. Consisting principally of traditionary usages and ancestral customs, the law was upheld by opinion. The people considered their jurisprudence as a part of their inheritance. Their privileges and their duties were closely conjoined. Most frequently, the statutes themselves were only affirmances of ancient customs, or declaratory enactments. In the Anglo-Saxon commonwealth, therefore, the legislative functions of the Wetinagamote were of far less importance than the other branches of its authority. The members of the Wetinagamote were the pares curia, peers of the court, of the kingdom. How far on these occasions their opinion or their equity controlled the power of the crown cannot be ascertained. But the form of inserting their names in the testing clause was retained under the Anglo-Norman reigns, and the sovereign, who submitted his charter to the judgment of the prosperous, professed to be guided by the opinion which they gave. As the pares of the empire, the Wetinagamote decided the disputes between great vassals of the crown. The jurisdiction exercised in the parliament of Edward I, when the barony of a Lord Marcher became the subject of litigation, is entirely analogous to the proceedings thus adopted by the great council of Edward, the son of Alfred, the Anglo-Saxon king. In this assembly, the king, the prelates, the dukes, the earldomen, and the optimates passed judgment upon all great offenders. 
the sovereign could not compel the obedience of the different nations composing the Anglo-Saxon empire. Hence it became more necessary for him to conciliate their opinions, if he solicited any service from a vassal prince or a vassal state beyond the ordinary terms of the compact. Still more so when he needed the support of a free burgh or city. And we may view the assembly, the Wittinigamote, as partaking of the character of a political congress, in which the liegemen of the crown, or the communities protected by the basilis, sovereign, were asked or persuaded to relieve the exigencies of the state, or to consider those measures which might be required for the common weal. The sovereign was compelled to parley with his dependents. It may be doubted whether any one member of the empire had power to legislate for any other member. The Regulus of Cumbria was unaffected by the vote of Earl of East Angliae, if he chose to stand out against it. These dignitaries constituted a congress, in which the sovereign could treat more conveniently and effectually with his vassals than by separate negotiations. But the determinations of the Witten bound those only who were present or who concurred in the proposition, and a vassal denying his assent to the grant might assert that the engagement which he had contracted with his superior did not involve any pecuniary subsidy, but only rendered him liable to perform service in the field. First Palgrave's Rise and Progress of the English Commonwealth, 637 to 642. End of chapter 3, part 6.